You're listening to Rosie on the House. Come on around back, Arizona, and welcome to our house, Rosie on the House. We're going out into our outdoor living hour. It's 8 o'clock. If you're following our home maintenance calendar, you know today we'll, we'll talk about staking trees in preparation for monsoon. We'll also talk about other things you can do in your yard to prepare for the coming winds. We hope, we pray, lots of winds, lots of rain. We've had a very wet year so far, but a very dry past few months. And man, the state could sure use could, a nice a nice dumping. If you'd like to join the conversation, it's one 767 4348 That's one 888 for you Jen's call screening today. You can send texts to 411-923. Or if you need a little help with plant or insect identification, you can snap a picture and send it to info at rosieonthehouse.com. We've got a special guest in today. Do I introduce you as the Gilbert Arborist or the City of Phoenix uh Arborist. <laughs> the Gilbert Arborist works just fine. Now, I don't know if you know, but I know somebody that knows you and ha- consults you for arbor advice on a personal level. Oh, that's great. Who would that be? A gentleman by the name of Lonnie Crabtree. I know Lonnie Crabtree. <laughs> he's my neighbor. Oh, he's a good man. <laughs> he, we, we both have peach trees. And we talk about, you know, the proper way to thin and the proper method to do this and that. And he he kind of is a he doesn't sit around still a lot and he doesn't have kids to go out there and pick a lot of blooms so he does he does a little bit heavier pruning than I do and we talk back and forth about the strategy behind that and he's he always quotes well Richard Atkins well Richard Atkins <laughs> I asked him so I would say well whose fruit crop is the best I mean do you have a better fruit crop than his okay that's a hard one because his Peach trees are about 12 years old now, and mine are only five and a half. Oh, okay. But I will tell you, the bees sure liked them because we were this close to going and picking all the peaches, and we walked out there, and bees had eaten every single peach on there. There were holes bored through every one, and every peach had five or six bees on oh, it. My. Just I looked for the hive because I thought peach honey might be good, but I could never find that hive. Uh, you'll have to net them <laughs> next year. Well, thanks for spending time this morning. You've got... Uh, some information for us on proper ways to stake our trees for the for the windy season. Yeah, it's very important for your young trees, uh, you know, that have been planted within the last year to make sure that they're supported, depending on the species and the size you planted. I mean, because when the winds blow, the, the roots have not developed yet to really hold the root plate and the tree in place. So you want to make sure the tree is secure so that those young roots that are just starting to grow into the soil are not torn or broken. One of the biggest um, concerns I have, and I see a mistake with a lot of homeowners, is they don't remove the nursery stake when the tree comes from the nursery. That's the, um, if you don't know, the nursery stake is the main, it's a piece of bamboo or either a wooden stake that's lashed very tight up against the trunk because it holds it straight in the nursery. I mean, that really needs to come off when you do plant a tree and you put two or three stakes around the tree to help support it. And that's a hard uh, discipline because you think, well, if it's there in the nursery, put it there. 
it must need it in the ground. <laughs> right. Well, I always like to think, well, it's not in the nursery anymore. So the nursery stake, you know, it needs to come off because the tree needs to sway a little bit. That helps build up, you know, trunk tissue and helps build up diameter of the tree. If it's, I mean, I like to look at the analogy if you had like a cast on your arm. You know, it's sitting there for a number of months, but it's really weak when you take the cast off. You need to really build back up all that muscle tone. It's the same if you leave this stake really tight up against the trunk of the tree. I mean, it needs to come off so that the tissues can develop and the tree can grow normally. I mean, you have to have some other stakes on the side. I think it's funny because I always see the stake staked to the tree. And so it's really beneficial to remove that, cut those ties off so the tree can sway a little bit and develop more naturally. And if you use what you see along roadside as your guideline to staking trees, you, you can get quite a false uh, perception of the correct way. A lot of times they don't have the room to do three, especially if they're going in the middle of median. You often see them just two, one on each side, and it's tied tight. Right. It needs to be loose a little bit. The two is fine. Um, you want to try to go with the direction of the wind, but it should be just a little bit loose. Um, there's different products out there. Uh, pretty much old school is using a piece of garden hose or irrigation hose and running a wire through it. Um, a lot of times, if you don't check it or adjust the stakes, the tree can grow into that and it can kind of girdle or strangle the tree over time. So there's some new nylon material out there that you can use to tie that kind of degrades after about two years, two and a half years. And if you tie it right, you tie it with a slip knot. So as the tree expands, the, the tie and the support expands as well. Now, how do you know when they can come off? Uh, generally, you never want to keep a stake on more than two growing seasons. Um, Physically, if you go out and if you can take the trunk of the tree and move it and you still see the soil kind of rocking a little bit around the size of the root ball, whether it's 15-gallon, 24-gallon, or 24-inch box size tree, if you see the root plate kind of moving in the soil, it's time to keep the stakes on for a little bit until that soil is pretty much settled. You don't want to see the soil move when you rock the tree. Right, and yeah, you can, you can see that plate just kind of rocking back and forth. And that's like something coming with um, the winds that you were talking about. I mean, that'll take it when the new roots are just starting to grow into the soil. And that'll start ripping and breaking those roots as well as that can tip the whole tree over. Now, what is your favorite type of tree to plant? When I called you yesterday, you were in a mesquite tree. I was in a mesquite. Um, favorite to plant? I really like a desert ironwood. We've spoken uh, about that before. Yes. Um, a palabrea is a favorite of mine, even though it's thorny. I still don't mind pruning them and climbing them. But, you know, around the valley here, I like to stick with your, your native desert trees. That is, and the ironwood, I think, is the best native tree for look. It's, it's the slowest growing. Um, but I, there's just something about a mature ironwood tree to sit back and look at that, I, I don't know. If you had to rate it on rank them, I, I'd say that beats a Palo Verde or Mesquite. Oh, by far. It's a very strong structure. Um, you know, the, the form is very strong. The color is nice. The flowers in the late spring are just exquisite. Those little purple pea flowers have that kind of a ghosting color if you look across the desert when it's in bloom. And then, of course, the, the beans, the little seed pods, are quite tasty. 
So, I mean, that's a great source of um, good nutrition and good food out in the desert. So you've got your natural ironwood. If you were looking for something that was, well, I guess an ironwood isn't evergreen. They will do some leaf drop in they the drought drop. if they get too stressed in the drought. But uh, a, a big shade tree. A big shade tree, other than, you know, not native. Um, you know, mesquites provide a lot of shade, but they're not for every space. You want to have the right tree in the right space when you're designing your landscape. Um, the red push pistache is a very nice shade tree, fairly low maintenance, um, medium growing. If you give it a little bit of extra irrigation during the season, it'll produce you some nice shade in about six to seven years. Arizona ash is still one of my favorites for a good deciduous you know, shade tree. There's many varieties out there on the market now, so you don't have to have all the seeds that come with the traditional Arizona ash. Uh, the Bonita variety is one of my favorites, kind of about a 20 by 20 crown spread tree. Um, no mess, very easy to maintain. Nice for a patio home or a side yard as well. And not every nursery carries every one of these types of trees we're talking about. And sometimes it takes uh, some time to look. And you may even just have to wait for the next wave of trees to come off the growing yards to hit the nursery. That's correct. Um, certain nurseries specialize in different types of material. And, of course, it runs construction cycles as well. Sometimes species, they'll sell out in one season. And so until they get others in and pot them up and get them growing in a available for the market, you might have to wait a little while for certain species or varieties. And when you talk about construction, so the property we're on right now has, let's see, how many ash trees are left? We've lost three of them, so there's four, five, six left. But it was a variety I'd never seen before, and I, I, I wonder where these came from. I wonder where these came from. Well, if you go to the spring training ballpark, you see that exact tree, and it's like, oh, this was the leftover order from what they ordered for this, for the ballpark. Okay. Yeah, it was probably a special variety that they had that was, like you said, non-seeding, mm -hmm. hold its leaf fairly well through the season, but then leafs out early for, like you said, the spring training when all the guests are there. And there was a time when you'd mentioned the red push pistache. I've got four of them now and I, want, I would like another four to finish out a little grove I'm putting mm -hmm. on the west side of our arena that way ultimately when it matures enough you the riders will at least have some shade in the summer months uh, as we're taking turns roping and getting in the box right. and whatever uh, and Bernie is like, well, I don't have them all. I just sent everything I had to Midland, Texas. They bought everything. Right. <laughs> like, you're going to have to wait another six months till I've got something to sell you. <laughs> and that's that's kind of how it goes. Like you said, it runs with the business. They're constantly, the nurseries are constantly putting up material. But somebody comes in with a big order. And you'll find a few specimen sizes around. But, you know, sometimes you just have to wait until they grow them in. one 767 4348 That's 1-888-ROSIE for you if you'd like to talk. In our outdoor living hour, Mr. Atkins, you are an arborist, but you are probably one of the most versatile uh, landscape gardener, growers all around, uh, minds that, uh, th that are in the state. We appreciate you joining us this Saturday morning. So it, I, I would say maybe not everything landscape because there's always that one question. As soon as you say, you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you have to, it's learning every day. When you're out in your landscape, whether it's, you know, out in nature or you're out in your yard, 
you're constantly learning. There's always something new to pick up. So, and if you'd like to uh, learn from Richard's learning experience, join the broadcast. We were talking about tree staking earlier, and Bill and Gilbert wants to know about uh, any special precautions or things to know about staking a bare root tree. Uh, well, bare roots, pretty much you want to handle the same way that you would handle uh, a boxed or a container tree coming from the nursery. Uh, it kind of depends on where you've got it from. Uh, most of your bare roots these days are coming in from California and are mostly fruit trees. Um, basically, you want to do the same. You want to make sure that you've planted it well. You've got your mound of soil and you've spread your roots out over it and your soil base has been back over there. You've watered it in well to remove any air pockets and the soil is settled around. But you still want to use um, two or maybe a three-stake system. I wouldn't necessarily put in guys but um, a two- or three-stake system. There is some um, different methods that I've seen people use where they have some strapping and they will put it over the root ball and anchor both ends of the strap into the ground down around the hole where the tree is planted. Um, that's a lot of extra work. So um, I still say three-stakes. Um, do it type of a, a hub-and-spoke type of a tie system between those three stakes. Make sure that the it's loose so the trunk can just move a little bit, but that the root plate and the soil around there is nice and secure so as the new roots are starting to grow into the soil, they're not pulled off and broken. And then he's got a flood-irrigated yard and wants to know about how do you keep grass from growing around the tree? All right. Um, the best way is just manually. Um, flood irrigated, you probably have some, um, you know, some old Bermuda grass. You'll get some other stuff that'll come in there. Um, basically, it just needs to be manual. Um, you can chemical spray, uh, but I don't always advise that. Once it probably takes about a good year of just manually pulling out the grass, digging it, getting a hoe or something, and breaking up the soil a little bit. But after a while, that'll get pretty solid there. And with just a little bit of effort, the you know grass and weeds and things won't grow back in around it. But that's an important point because you do want to keep grass from growing around the trunk of the tree. Um, that can hold excessive moisture up against the trunk as well as if you go in with any type of lawn maintenance equipment. Um, easy to damage the trunk of the tree. And this isn't the most, th this solution you have to keep doing over and over again. But when in our orchard, we've got a couple of trees that have uh, grass that just started growing around it. I, I don't know how it got transplanted, could be bird drop, whatever the case. Mm -hmm. We've got Bermuda. We've got chain link panels and we put those around the tree and then all of our old chickens that don't lay eggs anymore we put them put in there. Them inside to eat the weed seeds. and They grass. keep that grass very well contained. That's the old the, <laughs> the example of the chicken tractor. Yes. Which you're familiar with rotating the chickens around the pen or even in the um, orchard to help do that. That's actually an excellent idea. So, But 
if you take them off, well, the, the grass comes back fairly quick. So it's got to be an ongoing maintenance item. It's not great a long-term eradication solution, but it gives the old chickens something to do. Right, and they won't injure the trees. I mean, you could do goats the same way, but I don't think you'd have much left on your orchard if you put the goat in there. So I mentioned we have six ash trees left. There was nine. Two of the other three aren't there thanks to goats. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> I thought I was doing something nice. I'm like, we'll put them under this beautiful ash tree. It's it's our biggest one. It's got the most shade. I even put hog wire around the trunk. And those silly things stuck their heads through the, through the wire, hog yeah. wire and stripped all the bark in one night. Tenacious. <laughs> I should have wrapped chicken wire around the hog wire. And then they couldn't have gotten their head. I thought, they're not going to stick their head through that. No, they did. Yeah. No, that's important. Yeah, chicken wire actually works. We had that with beavers down in the Rio Salado. Beavers would um, eat the bark off of trees down through there, so we had to protect them. Like chicken wire was the way to go. And are you talking about the area just south of uh, the airport, the riparian area that they? Yeah, all recently? from yeah from about Sixteenth um, Street over to about Thirty Second Street down through there. A lot of the reclaim area. It's very nice if you haven't been down there in a while. The bike trails, the walking trails, very pleasant. I follow that area um, on one of our social accounts. I think it might be Twitter. I can't remember. But they – I've seen pictures. I keep thinking I've got to get back there because if you've ever driven over the Salt River at any point south of the airport, right. you're, it's not a pretty scene. <laughs> but the pictures I see from there, I think, man – They've done an incredible job. That's an incredible job. There's been a lot of work that's gone on there, and um, the natural plant community is coming back, and it's still augmented. The city works on that quite a bit, plants trees every year and some forbs and stuff, but it's it's really coming back and being very strong. Well, I'm glad to see that it's uh, – I'm going to have to make a, a special trip down there. One of the other areas that I really enjoy is that area on Hayden – South of McDowell, south of Saguaro, that water reclamation area. Have have you walked that landscape? No, I'm not familiar with it. They did, I think it's the water treatment plant, the landscape they did around there along the green belt. We had to go doing broadcast research, and we had the opportunity to walk through there with the arborists that put that together. They've got a beautiful Palo Verde canopy over the walkway Mm. with a lot of natural hardscapes. It's it's a really pretty public area to go walk. Very nice. When you are sending somebody to go see an example, you know, as we're looking, do you have any? And w- with the music, we've got a break here. We can do a lot of things here, but we can't stop the clock. <laughs> Think about that. Public areas to send people just to, to preview some of the beauty that desert has to offer. If you'd like to join the conversation, Jen is call screening. She's got a few on the line now, but you can jump on at one 767 4348 text messages 411923 or if you need to snap a picture for insect or plant identification info at rosyonthehouse.com On a beautiful Arizona Saturday morning our outdoor living hour we're joined by guest Richard Atkins of Gilbert Arborist main topic is just preparing for monsoon and before we get to other things in our landscape that we've got to be aware of for monsoons i kind of asked a question in real time where would you send somebody 
to look at great landscapes. If you've got a brand new property and you've got a clean slate to work with, or let's just say you're moving in a new one and you want to completely renovate your landscape, mm-hmm. where, where would you send somebody just to go look at all the options? Well, it kind of depends on the kind of landscape style you're looking for. Are you trying to go more of a, a native type of plant palette? Or if you're something more mythic with some water and you want lots of big shade trees. Um, if you're looking for you know your native desert species, um, if you just want to get a feel for how plant combinations work together and what species are available, I go down to the South Mountain Preserve area. It's lots of nice trails there, easy to walk. You can make some good observations about what plant species are there. Um, if you want to drive through some of the North Phoenix neighborhoods, some of the newer ones, most of those don't have much turf in them, and there's some really good, that in North Scottsdale, there's some really nice examples there of some da- native landscape. If you're looking for more of good shade trees and how that'll work with, you know, maybe a little bit of grass for play for the kids or the animals, um, North uh, central North Phoenix, you know, along the Murphy Bridal Trail, that's a really nice area in the neighborhoods back off of there. Uh, lots of nice big shade trees. Your different your ashes, your pistache, a lot of elms, even some old olives that have been maintained quite well. Um, all provide good examples of landscape for you to view. And there's a day and night landscape. You know, you oh, nightscaping is something that when it's done right, there's a lot of uh, you, you can really appreciate it. And there's times of the year. Uh, you know, I, in the wintertime, I get home and it's dark. <laughs> right. But we still like to spend time outside. Uh, I don't like to get home straight from the office straight to indoors. I like to enjoy uh, a little bit of weather every day, no matter if it's winter or middle of the summer. And, you know, you still got to feed the animals every day. <laughs> right. It's a nice uplighting um, for – I. My personal preference is for your native desert landscapes. I think the shapes of the, like the Ocotillo or the elephant tree or the saguaro or any of the cacti, euphorbias, they really take on the shadows and lighting really nicely in the, in the evening time. Um, for your bigger shade trees, you just need a little bit better uplighting so you can see the structure of the tree and how the branches come out. It's very soothing. Like you said, you're sitting out on the patio in the back, you know, different times of year. You want to be able to enjoy the landscape just as much at night as you do during the day. And we've got a series of text questions that we'll run through here in a moment. Uh, but before we do other things in the yard for the monsoon, lots of wind blowing around, uh, any of course, you, the the hardest thing is is taking down trees. We don't ever want to do that, but right. at some point they do have a life cycle, and if it's Indeed. going to damage the structure of your home, what do you look for in uh, tree strength to to determine if it's a risk to the house? All right, the first thing I'll go over to a client's house. I'll make sure that there's no branches or fronds if you have a palm nearby. They're actually touching the structure. I mean, uh, when the wind hits it, branches and palm fronds, they can actually tear the stucco off the side of the house. They can damage you know, any of your fascia. They can pull off um, roof tiles or any shingles. You want to make sure that that's you know, clear so when the branches are blowing around that you don't have them hitting your structure. I like to look for broken branches. 
any dead branches up, up in a tree because those will give way. They're not as strong, of course, as you know, a regular live healthy branch. Um, you want to look for some overextended branching, branches that are heavy or sitting out of the balance of the crown. Um, it's common people think they need to prune the tree so the wind will blow through. And it's kind of a little bit of misinformation. Um, crowns, if they're intact, they have kind of a natural dampening effect. So the whole all the branches and the leaves all work together. So the tree kind of moves around with the wind and it helps protect itself. Now, if you have heavy branches or something hanging out, you know, that can act as like a lever arm and really grab the wind. And that's how, you know, branches usually snap off. And that's a problem with over thinning. As the wind's going through, you have all these branches with no vegetation on them, these little pom-poms out on the end, and those really grab the wind, and that can put a lot of extra stress on the wood. So I always like to start pruning from the outside, get the heavy growth off the outside, leaving the inside a little bit more intact. And when it comes to our root structures for a lot of our man-planted trees, you know, the, the root watering too shallow is you know one of the <laughs> the biggest <things. laughs> absolutely you, you see that on any side street when a microburst goes through <laughs> right and, so, and in a lot of parking lots as well you know the roots have not been able to really establish themselves deep you're on drip emitters um, the timing's not always right you know i always rather run instead of running 10 minutes a day for seven days a week run me 70 minutes one day a week type of thing. So the water goes down through the profile, helps the roots to sink down lower, you know, become a, provide a more established root plate for the tree. Uh, our first text question comes from a 520 number. So Casa Grande or South, uh, well, at least it used to be with cell phones now. Right. <laughs> they, so where are they come They from? could be anywhere, but there's a, a likely possibility this is a Southern Arizona question. Uh, young apple tree in the backyard, uh, they in a friend's backyard, they want to remove it. Well, this person wants that apple tree. So how and when would be the best time to transplant that tree? Well, young apple, you know, define young, I would say probably within three to five years, perhaps. Um, I would wait until in the fall because apples, they will lose their leaf. That is the better time that you want to use for transplanting. And you want to try to get about nine inches in diameter circle for about every inch of diameter of the tree. So when you put your spade in to dig around for your root ball, you want to make sure that you grab enough of that root plate with it. Um, you'll cut a few of the younger roots, but basically you want to get that down, like I said, about an in, um, nine inches of diameter for every inch of diameter of tree. And... Um, Angle it back down so that you keep a nice big root ball there. You can use a burlap or a tarp or something to kind of lift it out with the shovel and set that in there, tie that around it so that you can carry it without disturbing the roots too much. Wintertime is the best. And you said the fall. Uh, some apple trees, especially if we get a light winter, won't lose all their leaves. That's correct. So if you're waiting for leaf drop, know that it may not happen. Now, on there'll the still apple. be a few left. You're, you're correct. Um, but, you know, after the, you're, you've harvested your fruit and the, the tree is actually slowed down, nothing really goes too dormant here, especially at the lower elevations. But, um, yeah, when it's slowed down a little bit, you don't have a lot of heat stress 
uh, that would um, affect the health of the tree. That's the better time. And then this one, uh, listener joined the broadcast while we were talking about tree selections, and they want to know if there's a website that lists them all. Um, others, there's actually numerous. Um, the ANA, the Arizona Nursery Association, um, you can contact them. They'll provide you a nice um, listing of all the nurseries as well as what they have, as well as the um, water users, the Maricopa County Water Users Association. They have a website where I can get you the address and you can put it on where you can go and look at um, pictures and information about both um, deciduous trees as well as native trees that are available here in the valley. And U of A Corporate Extension online Absolutely. resource has a lot of options there. We, all the trees we talk about, we do create a special page on, on our site in the tree category in our DIY database. But most of that comes from all three of the sources we just right. mentioned. And even <laughs> um, the city of Phoenix, they have a, a website there, their urban forest webpage that has about 40 species with information and photos of each of those. Now, with overwatering, hopefully, we're praying for lots of rain. That'd be do, great. Do we get enough to shut off our irrigation system? Um, I never like to shut off an irrigation system. Um, but after a good rain, you just need to monitor it. You want to monitor your soil moisture, which you can do that with a probe or a screwdriver, just to you know go down about four to six inches and see what the soil moisture is like. If we get a good rain of you know one and a half to two inches— that holds pretty well for a couple of days, um, but with our heat coming back on, that soil tends to dry out very, very quickly. So as far as turning it off, I would never advise, but maybe skipping a cycle, I, I think that's well worth consideration. And is there, on mine, I have to go manually shut system off to skip a cycle. It's remembering to turn it back on. <laughs> right. Now there's, and of course, there's many different types of controllers. There's some that's easy that you can just put the skip cycle and it'll come back. Um, a lot of them these days, you can work from your phone. Um, you could be out at the movies and it's raining. You could turn off your irrigation system that way and then just turn it back on later. I'm going to have to upgrade mine soon. And I'm Generally speaking, I'm not one that's a lot of techie or gizmo y right. or gadget kind of guy. I like things that uh, don't require that. Right. Uh, because if you, I don't like to be dependent on it. But I will say for my irrigation system, something that I could control from my phone, I'm going to make that investment. The, <laughs> the timer we have right now, it's an LED panel and it's. I'm trying to think, 19 years old. Oh, okay. So you can hardly see anything left <laughs> on it. It's, you know, sitting on the side of the house getting baked every day. My truck's not even as old as the right. irrigation timer. And some of the channels don't even work, so I've got to flip it, the valve on manually inside the box. And well, so you're back to the hand watering yep. <laughs> again. And, you know, depending on your plant palate, sometimes if, the, if it's established – um, one or two kind of hand waters during the summer might be all that your landscape actually needs, especially when the monsoon gets going. You know, that beginning of June and now in July, that little extra water really helps. Other than that, you know, some of your older trees, like your ash trees, they probably do just fine with just living on what nature brings them. One triple eight seven six seven four three four eight. That's one triple eight Rosie for you. We've got one final segment of our outdoor living hour coming up. 
A listener sent us a picture of a lemon tree that's looking looking a little rough. It was planted in 2018. It looks like it was a five-gallon when it was planted, probably close to a 10-gallon size, maybe a little bigger. And a number of the leaves on the end are brown and curling. Now, we talk about uh, watering. Sometimes an overwater can be uh, just as deadly to a tree as underwatering. Oh, absolutely. Uh, water is a main factor here. And a lot of people don't think, oh, the more water we give it, the better off it's going to be. Um, generally, your leaves will turn quite yellow when you get a good overwatering situation. Um, depending on where this tree is actually located, uh, could be kind of sunburn, especially for a young tree, especially if it just happened in the last month or so. Um, you might want to consider either upping the water a little bit, depending on what the actual water regime is, and maybe um, having some shade cloth and protecting the young tree for uh, the first season or so. When you drive through the old citrus groves and they're all painted white, that's not really uh, a aesthetic reason that they're painting them. No, they try to make them even so that it, it looks nice and clean, but generally that's to protect the bark. because um, Citrus is a very thinned bark tree. I mean, citrus are basically big shrubs, and we prune them up to make them trees, which makes it actually harder to pick the fruit sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, the they grow like that because it protects the bark from the sun and you know that can outer cambium tissue can actually burn in our hot sun you can get you know over 100 110 degree temperatures on the surface of the trunk and that will kill that live tissue so that paint is actually used for reflection a little whitewash to help protect the bark of the tree now we've got eight different types of citrus tree on the north side of our orchard and I didn't trim any of them for the first number of years just let it shrubbed out and then just now I'm starting to trim up and get the leaves off the ground so we can get to all the fruit on the inside and it's funny I've got one orange tree right in the middle that everything else is completely green and I've got this one and I know it's not a water issue you know but I I can't figure out It, it doesn't produce as well as all the others and it never looks quite as green and it's funny, it's, it's like, what what is it about this one in the middle that, that I'm missing? <laughs> it could be something with the roots underground when it was planted. You know, it could have been something with the root structure that might have been compromised or quite, you know, didn't develop quite the same as the others. Um, I like to leave my citrus trees, yeah, pretty much unpruned. You just don't want the leaves to touch the ground because especially if you're flood irrigating, you don't want any um, water or fungus to be able to you know, Infiltrate touch the leaves, the leaves. yeah, and, and get back up into the crown of the tree. But as low as you can keep it, uh, you'll be better off. The tree will like you better for it. Do you have a variety of citrus that you like uh, production-wise? They, I, I haven't found one I haven't been happy with. <laughs> um, they're all quite good. It kind of depends on your personal taste. I like good blood oranges. Um, they take a long time. You're not going to get fruit for seven to eight years, but... Um, that, I'm more of a lemon-lime type of guy, variegated lemon, those pink variegated lemon, Eureka variety, one of my favorites, very um, no-nonsense tree, easy to maintain, beautiful pink limes, very sweet. You can almost just eat them straight. I like the citrus over – I like how long they'll stay on the tree right. You know, your apples, your peaches, you've got a small, small window. harvest window there, but – for the citrus, I mean, it, it'll keep you a couple months if you gradually just 
just right, you have a good grapefruit tree. You'll be eating grapefruit for months and giving it to your neighbors, and everybody's enjoying. Uh, we've mentioned winds. Uh, let's talk about rain coming off the roof uh, as we wrap up this this hour. We don't typically see gutters included in the original build of home. A lot of builders in Arizona, you know, we don't get enough rain. It's not worth to put the gutters right. in, but it a lot of times it, it is worth it if the depending on the roof the the roof size and structure and layout. You dump a lot of water in a short area fast period of time and bad things can happen (laughs) right i mean you think of our when we get rains most people think of the winds but the rains usually do accompany us in the you know in the monsoon season and you know an inch of rain on a one square foot of your roof is over a half a gallon of water so you think of your average you know 500 to a thousand square foot type roof you're talking you know over 600 gallons of water there um, and like you said, we don't get a whole lot, but a lot of people are starting to harvest their rainwater, either for containers to use in their landscape or just a design within their landscape. They build swales and catchments to help, you know, reduce their need for irrigation. So when we get good downpours of water like this, you want to make sure that, you know, those gutters, if you have them, or your pipes that are channeling your water are clean and been maintained. Um, when I'm up in trees, I see a lot of flat roofs and um, the scuppers that come off the flat roof. People don't realize that, you know, there's debris that can catch up there and then clog that. And then you have many pounds of water that's sitting on that roof if you have a good, you know, two, three inch rain. And that can cause a lot of damage. As well as in your landscape, you have your, you know, your basins and your swales that you're collecting water. They each have a little overflow system. And you just want to make sure that the debris is cleaned out at that so that the system's functioning like you want it to. So, Richard Atkins, thanks for spending your Saturday morning with us and oh, driving up pleasure. for the broadcast. Uh, if somebody needed a consulting arborist, you're Gilbert Arborist? That is correct. And that's uh, kind of a you, – you go between there and working uh, on city properties through uh, – how, how many trees are in Phoenix? On your parks? Um, within the <laughs> parks in the streets in Phoenix, there's just about 100,000. You don't think about 100,000. That's, that's a lot to manage. <laughs> it's a lot to manage, but the benefits it brings to the residents of Phoenix on an annual basis is over $9 million. Wow. That, that would, took some calculation. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot of calculations out there. That's, that's part of the job, keeping the inventory, trying to grow plant new trees, as well as maintain the older trees to increase the canopy. And that's just Phoenix. Just about every city in the state has its own arborist. Uh, uh, I say city, you know. And a program to, you know, provide shade and cooling for the residents. Exactly.